Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, we're continuing our series this morning in Exodus chapter 3. We're in a series called Call and Response. And now, uh, for one, one of the clearest times, we see God very clearly calling to Moses. In fact, it says in the text, he calls to him out of this bush. And I want you to sort of get a little bit of the context. So remember, as we were looking last week, um, Moses sort of runs away. He ends up in Midian. He finds a wife. He finds a family. He sort of settles in. And at the end of the text we read last week, you know, there was the sense in which God is remembering that he hears the people, that he sees them, that he knows them, that he remembers who he is and the promises that he's made. And now as we come into Exodus chapter three, some 40 years have gone by and Moses has been a shepherd. If we were to look in the book of Acts, it'll tell us a little bit about the timeline. But as we come into to Exodus chapter three, we know he's been a shepherd for 40 years. He's kind of settled into a routine. He sort of uh, has a standard thing he's doing. There's a couple little interesting uh, factoids here I don't want you to get hung up on. You'll notice that he's shepherding the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. And if you're paying really close attention, you might go, Jethro, his father-in-law? I thought his father-in-law's name was Ruel. Because remember in chapter two, when the girls come home from the well, they say to their father, Ruel, don't get hung up on it. It's not a big deal. Essentially, what I think is happening there is that Ruel is his proper name. That's the name his mom gave him. Jethro is more of a title. He's a priest of Midian. Jethro is more of a, a like a, uh, it's like a professional name. And, and for the record, Jethro is the way he'll be referred to through the rest of the book. You might also get hung up here on the, on the idea of the mountain of God being called Horeb. Uh, theologians sort of have a lot of different theories about whether the mountain Horeb is the same, Mount Sinai, whether they're the same thing, or whether they are two separate mountains. Maybe they're, they're names for two different sides of the same mountain, believe it or not, some people say that, that one side is Horeb, the other side is Sinai. Some people have even said it might be one mountain with two peaks, and one is Horeb and one is Sinai. Can I just say, it doesn't matter, right? You can decide that however you want. It doesn't make any difference. There are things in this text that are very significant, and you don't want to get so hung up on the insignificant that you miss the significant. And, and I mean, that is a major theme in the text we're studying this morning in these ver- first 10 verses. You see, what's so powerful in the text is that Moses turns aside. He turns aside to see. You know, God is a God who likes to get our attention. God is a God who has things he wants to say to us, things he wants to declare about who he is and who he's created us to be. And the problem for us sometimes can be that we get into such a routine where we know how things are gonna happen, we know how things are gonna be organized, we know what comes first, what comes second, what comes third. And when we get into a routine and when we get into a pattern like shepherding the same flock of the same family in the same wilderness for 40 years, sometimes when we get into a routine like that, we miss the places and the ways in which God is trying to wake us up. He's trying to get our attention. He's trying to get us to think differently than we've thought before, to take a second look, if you will. And particularly when we're looking at a famous passage. So Exodus 3, 1 through 10, that's a, I mean, that's almost as famous a passage as you can get, right? Moses in the burning bush. If you've been in church for any length of time, or even if this is the first time you've ever come into a church, it's likely you've heard the story about Moses in the burning bush through a, a, you know, a VBS at some point, or maybe a VeggieTales cartoon, or a puppet show, or whatever, Right? And the danger for us can be when we come to a familiar text like Exodus 3, 1 through 10, that we go, yeah, I already know that. I could teach that story. Yeah, yeah, Moses is wandering. He sees a bush. It's on fire. He talks to it. God talks back to him. And there they go, right? And if we get into a routine, if we get into habits, if we get to a place where we feel like we know how things are going to go and the way things are going to work, we can miss the truly significant ways God's trying to speak with us. You and I have to have our radar up, don't we? 
We have to have our alertness in order. We have to be paying attention to the ways in which God would want to speak to us. And that's true this morning, just like it is in every moment of our lives, that we don't want to get so focused on our routine that we miss the unique ways that God might want to speak. I, uh, I had the opportunity to be a chaplain with the LA County Sheriff's Department for a little while. And uh, periodically I do ride-alongs with the deputies. And on one particular day I was doing this ride-along with the deputy and we got a call to go into a residential area where there was a kind of a, a vagrant who had sort of moved into a cul-de-sac and he'd set up camp like at the end of the cul-de-sac. There's all these houses, tons of families. And this guy had just kind of sat down. He had like a big old bottle of wine. He had a duffel bag. He had a boom box that he was playing music in. And he just sort of sat down on the curb and kind of was like, this is where I'm going to be. So they called the sheriff's department and we go over to this neighborhood. And uh, when we pull up, you can tell the guy is drunk and he might be a little crazy. And so the deputy said, Darren, why don't you stay in the car? I'm going to kind of feel the situation out and, uh, and we'll see, you know, where we go from there. So he gets out of the car and I got my window down. He, he walks over to the gentleman. He says, sir, he says, uh, how are you today? And the guy says, great. He says, I found a place where I'm going to live now. And, uh, and the deputy goes, oh, I don't really know if that's going to work. You know, I don't, you can't, like, this is a neighborhood. You, do you own one of the homes in this neighborhood? And the guy says, I don't own any home. I live wherever I want and this is where I want to live, you know? And the deputy says, well, it's a little bit of a problem because we've got neighbors here, people that have actually owned these houses here in front of them. They've got kids, young families, and it's just not, you, you can't, you're not allowed to sort of live right here. And so we're going to need to, uh, we're going to need you to pack up your stuff and we're going to need you to move someplace else, okay? And I, I just want you to be cool about it. We're just going to get your stuff and go. And the guy says, he stands up and he kind of moves toward the deputy. So the deputy takes a step back and the guy kind of gets right in his face and he goes, let me tell you something. He says, I didn't just wander into this cul-de-sac. God told me to come into this cul-de-sac. And so I came into this cul-de-sac because God told me, and I'll tell you something, no sheriff's deputy, no police officer, nobody's gonna tell me, no housewife in suburbia is gonna tell me where to go because God sent me here and only God can tell me to leave. And the deputy goes, uh, hold on one second, right? So he goes, <laughs> he, uh, he comes back over to the patrol car where I'm sitting and he goes, hey, would you, would you mind just stepping out here for a second? And uh, so I, I'm kind of nervous about what's going to happen. I step out of the car and, uh, and I've got my uniform on. So I'm wearing like, I'm wearing a, a green, I've got a bulletproof vest and then I've got a green polo that says sheriff's chaplain and then a jacket that says sheriff's chaplain. I get out of the car and uh, the deputy says, uh, sir, I'd like to introduce you to Darren. He works with me. And he says, Darren, for the record, would you just tell this gentleman who you work for? And I said, uh, well, that's a, that's a great question. I said, I, uh, I work for God. And the guy goes, what? And uh, he says, what am I supposed to do? And I said, well, you know, I, I really think you should get in the car and go with us to a place that's better for you. And he goes, great, let's go. And he gets in the car and that was it, right? All it took was just a sign from God to be redirected. And I just happened to be on the right ride along on that particular day. I wonder, and it's worth reflecting on this morning, how often you and I miss the places where God is trying to speak to us. Maybe we've got our headphones in. Maybe we're so frustrated about traffic. Maybe we're so focused on the task in front of us. Maybe we're so overwhelmed by the stresses of daily life, or maybe we've just gotten into the mundane routine of regular life, and God is flashing a sign. God is sending a beacon saying, I've got something I want to say to you. I've got some things I want you to know. I want to declare some things to you about who I am and who I created you to be, and we miss them. 
Aren't you glad that Moses turns aside to look? That he sees this bush on fire and he doesn't just go, oh yeah, sometimes things catch on fire, right? But instead he turns aside to look. Look at the text. It says, now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and the He came to Horeb, the mountain of God, the angel of the Lord. By the way, this isn't an angel like Gabriel or Michael. When it talks about the angel of the Lord this way, it's talking about God himself in a a manifestation. So God is manifesting himself. Some theologians will say this may actually be what we would call a Christophany or a a pre-incarnate representation of Jesus, a place where Jesus shows up on the scene in the bush. The angel of the Lord there. We're not talking about a a created angel. We're talking about an emissary of God, a a way in which God can speak and does speak to his people. It says here, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. He took a second look. There are a couple of things in this opening text I want you to see that are the result of taking a second look. Things you might not see if you you raced through it or if you went too quick, but I want you to see there's a couple of really neat things in this opening text that I don't want us to miss this morning. Maybe this is like, you could call this sort of an appetizer to the actual sermon that will come in a second, right? First thing I want you to note is that God is answering the prayers of his people, but he's doing it outside of their view, and that's significant, right? Remember at the end of two, at the end of chapter two, God said, I've heard the cries of my people. Their cries have come up to me. I've seen them, I've heard them. I remember who I am. I know what needs to be done. I'm with my people, I'm gonna do something about it. The people have been crying out in their suffering and their anguish. God is answering their prayer, but he's not doing it right in front of them. He's answering their prayer miles and miles and miles away. The people in Egypt currently, the ones who are enslaved, don't have any sense at this time that God is already moving in response to their prayers. And that's important. Because there are a lot of times in our life we're in the midst of difficulty or in the midst of pain, in the midst of confusion or frustration. We cry out to God, don't we? We say, God, I need you. Help me, deliver me, give me wisdom, give me direction, show me who you want me to be in this moment. There are these moments where we cry out. And sometimes in those moments, you just kind of feel like your prayers hit the ceiling and bounce back down to you. You know what I'm talking about? There are moments where you're asking God to deliver you and you feel like he's ignoring you or he's not paying any attention. And I want you to see what's happening here is that God is responding to their prayer, but not in a way that they can immediately see. Is it possible this morning, based on what we see in the text, That the prayers you've been praying for deliverance, or the prayers you've been praying for God to move, or the prayers you've been praying for God to give wisdom or insight, that maybe God is responding to those already, and you just can't see it yet. Can you trust him in that? Can you trust him to be moving in a distant place in response to your prayers right here? I think we have to. I'm actually greatly encouraged by the fact that God is moving in response to their cry even though they can't necessarily see it yet. That's one little thing I see in the text. You know, another interesting thing I see in this text is, is that it's significant that the, that the bush doesn't burn up, right? It says here that Moses says, I will turn aside to see this great sight. This is verse three. Why the bush is not burned. The bush was burning, it says, in two, yet it wasn't consumed. That's, you might look at that and go, well, it's just a neat miracle, right? God's just doing something, it's a spectacle. It's some kind of spectacular thing. Yeah, but, but there is something really significant and important you don't want to miss about the fact that the brightness and the glory of God represented in this bush doesn't actually require twigs and branches and leaves in order to be fueled. 
The fact that God burns in this place but is not fueled by the bush itself says something significant about our God. You see, our, our God, this is a, sort of a big theological idea you don't want to miss here. Our God doesn't need anything. He's not fueled by anything. We believe that God subsists alone. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, why did God create the universe? He created everything because he was so lonely, because he needed companionship, and he wanted someone to do this and that. And it's like, no, no, no. The moment that you say God needs something or that God wants something, what you're saying is that God is lacking something, that God is lacking something in in his very nature, and he isn't. God is totally sufficient and sustained in himself. He does not need the fuel of the bush in order to burn. He subsists alone. Now, now look, the, the opposite is not true. The entire universe depends upon God for its existence, right? The entire universe, everything we know and everything we see is dependent upon God for its sustenance and for its life, but God is dependent on nothing. He doesn't need us. In fact, his invitation to know him, his invitation to participate, to serve him and to sacrifice, those invitations are not because God somehow is lacking something and he needs some help. God invites us not because of a need on his part, but because he is good, because he wants us to enjoy him, because he wants us to know him. It's an it's a, it's a extension of his grace that he invites us in. It's significant that the bush burns, but the branches aren't consumed. Why? Because God doesn't need fuel. He doesn't need anything. He subsists alone. That's one thing. God's answer begins far away from where the prayer goes up. I think it's really interesting in this text that God beckons to him, right? This bush is burning and Moses turns aside. It's clear that God is calling to him out of the bush. It's interesting to me that God both beckons Moses nearer and then warns him to stay away, right? Does that seem weird? That God says, Moses, Moses. And Moses starts walking over that way and he goes, don't come any closer. What's that about, right? Well, that's important. There's an important lesson to be learned in that. One more little thing that you might miss if you didn't take a second look. If you just read this over or you assumed that you already understood everything that was happening here, that second glance is important because we learn something important about God when we see that he both wants us to be near him and at the same time, he can't have us right next to him or we will be consumed and destroyed by his holiness, right? God says, I want you to come near to me, but you can only get so close. There is a danger sometimes, especially in the culture in which we live, in which people sometimes want to bring God completely down to sort of a buddy level. You know what I'm talking about? That we hear this idea that Jesus loves us, which he absolutely does. We hear this idea that there's no greater love that man has for another than that he laid down his life. And so then we go, wait a second, Jesus is just my pal. You know, we're just, we're just buddies. We're pals. We're friends. And there's a danger in that for us sometimes getting too close. And what do we lose? In that moment where we get a little too close, we lose our sense of awe. We lose our sense of reverence. We lose that sense of holy fear. Not the kind of fear that you feel when you're watching a scary movie, but a a respect for the holiness of God, the fact that he is other, that he is separate, that he's worthy of our worship. God wants us to know him and he beckons us close But we as created finite beings can only get so close, right? There is a way in which God says, come there. Don't come any closer. Look at what he says to Moses. Moses, Moses, he says in verse four. Moses said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. This is interesting too, isn't it? God calls him and then God holds him at length. 
And then God says, take your shoes off. Have you ever sort of wondered what that's all about? That's like the main thing that drives me crazy in this text, by the way. Because I go, well, what's God's problem with shoes, right? What, like, I don't understand. Like, he just, God's like, hey, you're learning about me as we go along. One of the things you need to know, I hate shoes. So just keep them away from me, right? <laughs> I don't get them. I don't wear them. I got no time for it, right? Is that what's happening here? No, that's not what's happening. Some people will look at this and they'll go, oh, holy ground, holy ground. No shoes allowed on holy ground. So then you kind of go, well, why? What's the deal with shoes? And people will go, oh, well, it was like a cultural thing, right? The culture of the time, the people during that time, they had this sense of like shoes were dirty and gross, and so you shouldn't bring shoes into a place that's holy. And I say, okay, so what, what we're talking about here is God adapting his call to the culture of mankind? Is that what's happening here? God goes, oh, I like that rule you guys came up with. I like that shoe rule. I hadn't thought about that, but it's a good one. So I think I'm gonna do that. Yeah, no more shoes around God. Thanks very much for the idea, people, all right? No, it's not, it's not God adjusting himself to the culture of the time. That's certainly not what's happening here. So what's the thing with the shoes? It's worth noting there's not a place prior to this where there's a rule about shoes, so it's not God sort of aligning with a thing he's already said. There are other places in the Bible where shoes are, are requested to be taken off, but I want us to think about it. I want us to take a second look, because I think there's two things happening with the shoes, and the first one, you might not even need me to say it. It might be so obvious it doesn't bear saying, but listen, every time that God calls his people, he always calls them to obedience, and sometimes the obedience isn't even tied to the thing they're going to be doing, right? God, God is calling here, I think, Moses, to an act of simple obedience. Moses, Moses, it's me. This is holy ground. Take off your shoes. Why? Because shoes can't stand on holy ground? No, it's not that. It's that God calls us in conjunction with simple acts of obedience. And when God calls, we should take our shoes off, whether we get it or not. Whether our shoes are clean or dirty, whether they're expensive or cheap, whether we're a shepherd and we've been wandering around among sheep and shepherd stuff, right? So that's a very PC way to say that. When God says, come near to me and take off your shoes, what's the right response? The right response is not, why should I? I think that's sometimes how we respond to God in our world today, isn't it? That we read God's word, we see, we see God's expectation revealed, and we want to come back and go, well, maybe I'll do that if you explain it to me. If you can make a good case for why I should and when I should and how, then I will. But sometimes we don't necessarily even have to know, right, why. We obey because he's God and there is no other. I think part of it is just simple obedience, but I think there's something even deeper. I could be wrong about this. But I think God wants Moses to get as close as humanly possible to holy ground. If this is holy ground because of the presence of the angel of the Lord in the bush, right? If God says, this is holy ground, take off your shoes. I don't think it's that God hates shoes. I think it's that he wants Moses to be able to get as close as physically possible to his holiness. This is holy ground, Moses. You don't want to have shoes between you and me. You don't want to have anything between you and holy ground, get rid of that. Now listen, shoes are fine, right? Shoes are, are an accepted practice. They're very valuable, right? They keep you from stepping on thorns. They keep you from stepping on rocks. They make it possible for you to travel longer distances than you could travel otherwise. I think there are all kinds of great arguments for why shoes make sense for human beings until a shoe gets between you and what God wants for you. And when a shoe gets between you and what God wants for you, who cares about shoes at that point? You see what I'm saying? 
Shoes might not be your issue this morning. Shoes might not be my issue, but there are things that make sense in any other context, and when they become an obstruction to me getting as near to God as I can, I need to get rid of them. You see what I'm saying? I want us to look in our lives this morning and go, what are the ways in which I've created barriers between myself and knowing God more fully? What are the ways in which I've put protections around myself that make all kinds of sense in the world maybe, or make all kinds of sense in my workplace, or make all kinds of sense in my neighborhood, but they're preventing me from knowing God fully, from being authentic, from opening myself, from being able to draw near to God as close as humanly possible. What are some things that I've put into practice? You know, some of us have been so hurt in human relationships that we, we, we've barricaded our hearts behind a wall. We feel like, well, I gotta do this to protect myself. I gotta do this to protect myself so, so nobody can hurt me anymore. And, and I can see why you might have built a wall like that. But sometimes that same barricade that you've erected to, to separate yourself from pain is also preventing you from, from being open before God. And so in that case, I think God would look at you and go, hey, you're standing on holy ground. Tear that wall down, right? You're standing on holy ground. Put down your dukes. You're standing on holy ground. Kick off your shoes, whatever it is. I want you to get as close to this ground as possible. Something you might miss if you didn't take a second look. The last thing I want you to see in this text the last thing I want you to see in this text is that he identifies himself as being the God of Moses' father. That's Amram. But then he goes even further back. In verse 6, he says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. By the way, it doesn't tell us that he took his shoes off. I kind of hope he did. I, I sort of assume he did, right? It doesn't say that. Because God doesn't change, in some ways, when we want to know what God is like, we have the ability to look at who he's been, right? There are all kinds of people who want to write, you know, all sorts of new books and new theories and new ideas about some new discovery that they've found out about God. And listen, you and I as, as finite beings, created beings, we're never going to fully exhaust our knowledge of God. We're going to spend the rest of creation learning things about God because we'll never know everything about him, right? So there are new things to learn, but it's interesting to me sometimes that we get so focused on learning new things about God that we ignore the things he's already revealed about himself. I like the fact that God's calling card or his ID, if you will, is I'm a God you already know. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You want to know something about how I'm going to function in the present, Moses? I'm going to function in the present the way I functioned in the past because I don't change. I love the fact that Moses seeks out this God. It says in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 8, it says, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. Do you have your radar up? Are you taking a second look? Are you watching for the places where God will reveal himself to you? God doesn't need us, but he invites us in. He, he doesn't need any sort of fuel. He's sustained on his own. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He doesn't need us, but he invites us to draw near to him. He invites us to draw near but not too near. We're supposed to maintain a sense of reverence and awe and wonder. And then in that place, he identifies himself to us as the same God that's always been. If we want to learn more about God, part of that knowledge is understanding who he's been so we'll understand who he is. And that's all just sort of the, the preamble to my sermon. Now we're going to start the sermon. I've got 11 minutes left, right? 
But I felt like it was important this morning to begin there to say, look, if we just race past this, if we race past it, there's so much that can be missed if we don't stop, if we don't slow down, if we don't have our radar up and pay attention to the ways in which God wants to get our attention. I'm not a very good snapper. And the way he wants to speak to us. Now, when God finally speaks, what he says is spectacular. Let's read it together. Verses seven and following. Back to Exodus chapter three. It says, just previous to this, Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look at God. Verse seven, then the Lord said, and here's God's speech. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. This is awesome. You have to imagine that for Moses, this is a spectacular moment. Because I don't believe that Moses just sort of put the Israelites out of his mind. I don't think that he's so cold and heartless that he's forgotten that he has aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and a whole generation, generations of people, his people, that are enslaved. We know he has a compassionate heart. We know he has a desire to protect. We know he has a desire to come to the rescue of those people. We've already seen it on display. I don't think Moses goes to Midian and it's kind of an out of sight, out of mind. I think he lives in Midian But I don't think there's very many moments that he doesn't sort of feel a sense of guilt. Wouldn't you feel guilt if everybody else in your entire family and everybody else that you know was enslaved? I think he feels a sense of some shame about what he did, about doing the right thing the wrong way, of being in exile, being a stranger in a strange land. And so when God comes to him and says, Moses, I know you're sort of involved in the shepherding thing, but here's the deal. I've heard the cries of my people, right? If you're Moses, don't you think you go, yes. Something's happening. I've seen their, their oppression. I've seen the injustice under the taskmasters in Egypt. Yes, God, I'm so glad. I'm so glad to hear you say this. I've decided to set them free from their slavery. I've decided to go in and do something supernatural. God is both declaring that he recognizes the desperate need and that he has a miraculous solution. God is declaring there's a desperate need in Egypt. I have a miraculous solution. I'm going to go in and I'm going to deliver them. Not only deliver them from enslavement, God doesn't just set them free from something. He sets them free to something, and that's true of us as well. God says, I'm going to set them free from their slave drivers, and I'm going to lead them into the land I promised to Abraham. I'm going to lead them into the land of promise, a land that flows with milk and honey. I'm going to set them from their enslavement. I'm going to set them free to the promised land. And if you're Moses, don't you imagine that it's just like, yeah, you know, like here, he, I don't know if he's like on the ground or whatever, but it's, got, it's Moses and God's talking. And he goes, I've seen the enslavement. And Moses is like, awesome. And he goes, I'm going to do something about it. Yes, God, you know, I'm going to take them away from their enslavement. This is the best. I can't wait to tell my wife, you know, I'm going to lead them into a land full of milk and honey. Oh God, they're going to love that. So cool. I think God probably, I think that Moses probably loved that speech, Right. Up to a point. I think he probably loved about seven-eighths of that speech. I think he probably loved about seven-eighths of that speech because there's a progression here where God goes, I see it, I hear it, I remember my covenant, I know them, and I'm going to do something about it, right? And through all of that, I think Moses would be like, yeah. So here's the way this looks, right? Yes, 
Good for you. The people are going to be thrilled. Yes, deliver them. I cannot wait for this. And then God says, so now go. I've chosen you. And it's just like, what? Right? Uh, Come again? Right? Look at verse 10. He says, come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I think Moses was probably really excited about God's recognition of this desperate need. I think Moses was probably really excited about God's miraculous solution. But we know from the argument that follows, which we'll look at next week, that Moses was a little put off by God's unexpected strategy. And this is important for us this morning. It's important for us because more than Moses, more than the time in which Moses lived, we live in a time in which there is a desperate need. In which there is a desperate need. A more desperate need even than the need of the people of Israel who are enslaved under their Egyptian taskmasters. You see, we live in a time period in which people are enslaved to sin, to wickedness and selfishness and pride. We live in a time period in which people are enslaved to sin and some of them don't even know they're enslaved to sin. The Bible teaches that all of us are sinners, that all of us have failed to glorify God with our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. We've all failed to live up to the standard for which God created us, the purpose for which God created us. And that sin separates us from him. Psalms 5 says the wicked can't dwell in God's presence. Romans 6 says the consequence or the wages of sin is death. We live in a time where people aren't just enslaved, but they are dead in their sin. Cut off from God. You want to talk about a desperate need? The Israelites were in a bad spot here, but it doesn't even compare to the spot that humanity is in because of our our lostness, our brokenness, our spiritual death in sin. There's a desperate need. But here's the great news. Just like what Moses is hearing, the great news is God has a miraculous solution. And his miraculous solution is the person of Jesus Christ. That the Lord Jesus comes fully God. He comes incarnate. He takes on a body. He comes, and like it says in Isaiah, the sin of the world is laid on him. He dies, not because he deserved to, not because he earned that, not because he was tricked or bamboozled by his disciples or whoever else, the Pharisees. Jesus went to the cross, part of God's miraculous solution to set people free. He goes to the cross, and by shedding his blood, by dying in our place, he sets us free from sin and death. He sets us free from sin and death. Sorry, I got a crackle. See if I can fix that. He sets us free from it. And not only that, he doesn't stay dead. He dies for us, but he rises again on the third day. He conquers sin and death. And then by his grace, he extends to us resurrection life by grace alone. We put our faith in Christ and we can be set free. Not only set free from sin and death, but set free to Resurrection life. Set free to a relationship with God. Set free to eternity in his presence. Set free to sanctification whereby we're being conformed to the image of Christ over time. Set free to live the lives we were created for. Lives of worship. And that's an exciting story. And we like that story, I bet. When I tell you, hey, we live in a broken place where people are enslaved to sin and God has a miraculous solution, I imagine there's a thing in your heart that goes, yeah, yes. Jesus did it. And that's true. What we don't like is the last seven-eighths of the story where Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. 
and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything which I've commanded you. The, the piece of it that we don't like, the piece where we go, huh? Is the part where it says we have been appointed as ambassadors. 2 Corinthians chapter five. 2 Corinthians chapter five verse 17 says, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. Set free from something, set free to something. Miraculous solution, Right? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think we love the fact that God responds to the desperate need in the world. I think we love his miraculous solution. I don't think, based on the way we live, that most of us like his unexpected strategy. And his strategy is, by the way, God could have... God could have sent that message out to the world any way he wanted to. He chose to do it through ambassadorship. And the reason we don't necessarily like ambassadorship is ambassadorship is not something you volunteer for. Think about this for a second. There isn't going to be a time at the end of the service this morning where I'm going to go, how many of you want to carry God's message to those who are lost in sin? How many of you like this? We're going to have clipboards in the lobby. Sign up to be ambassadors. No, no, no. Here's the thing. Uh, You don't sign up for ambassadorship. In fact, when, when ambassadors volunteer, they're typically pretty crummy ambassadors. Think about Dennis Rodman, for instance, right? (laughs) Nobody asked that guy to go to Korea for us, and he went, and it was a mess, right? You don't volunteer for ambassadorship. An ambassador is appointed by the king to carry the king's message to the king's audience. Ambassadorship really has very little to do with the ambassador. You're just an emissary. And here's the thing. There's not going to be a moment this morning where I'm going to say, how many of you are willing to be God's ambassadors, part of his unexpected strategy. No, 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 because you don't raise your hand for it. We've been appointed. We've been appointed to ambassadorship. I think Moses was excited that God heard the cries of his people. I think Moses was excited that God was going to set them free and deliver them to promised land. But I think, I think Moses balked. I know he balked, and we're going to see it next week. Moses paused because of God's strategy, which was, you, Moses, go. I think each and every one of us have to recognize that it's not that seven-eighths of the gospel are exciting and one-eighth is gross. All of it's exciting. All of it's exciting. The fact that he would allow us, right? The fact that he would allow us to be his ambassadors, that we are the ones who've been given the privilege of carrying this message of reconciliation to a world that is lost apart from him. That's not, that's not the negative side of the gospel. That's not the part of the gospel that you just sort of have to take with sugar or whatever. That's part of what's spectacular about the gospel. His recognition of the desperate need, his miraculous solution, and his unexpected strategy. All of that brings glory to God. All of it is worth rejoicing over. All of it is part of the fun. But I think sometimes we don't see it as part of the fun because we want to do things our way, because we want to make choices, because we want, we want God to sort of do his thing and leave us out of it. But for those of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus, ambassadorship is not something you opt into or opt out of. 
It's something you're appointed to. The king appoints ambassadors to carry his message to his intended audience. And it's part of the joy. It's part of what we rejoice over in the gospel. It's not something you know, that we sort of see reluctantly, but something that's part of what makes it awesome. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? As we've looked at this exciting message that God gives to Moses, I wonder if there aren't some of you here in this place, if there aren't some of you here in this place who, who haven't just been missing God's call, who haven't just been missing the ways God's been trying to get your attention, but maybe there are some of you here this morning who've been intentionally stopping up your ears, closing your eyes. Maybe there are some of you who've been intentionally driving past the beacons of God and pretending like they're not there, walking away from the burning bushes in your life because you don't want to, you don't want to step into simple obedience. I would invite you this morning to repent of that. Repent just means to turn. It just means you were going one direction and now you're going another. Would you just turn loose of that? God has invited you to be ambassadors and I want to invite you to respond to that invitation with worship and joy. That it's a joy to be part of God's plan to deliver his people. God, I pray that you would move in us, that we would be people of sacrifice, people of simple obedience who are willing to kick off our shoes or whatever else we gotta kick off to be nearer to you. God, that you would move in us with hearts of service and hearts of joy that you have included us in your unexpected strategy to meet a desperate need through a miraculous solution. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to continue our worship this morning through the giving of our offerings. You know, worship doesn't start when our service starts. I think you know that. We worship before we come into this place. This is a place where all these different streams sort of flow into and we've got this massive river of worship for a few minutes and then we flow back out into our individual worship but it's ongoing and our giving is part of that worship. It's a way for us to honor God and ascribe to him the worth he deserves. I encourage you to participate in that and I encourage you to stand to your feet and sing with us as we sing his praises this morning as well.